Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Go ahead and turn with me. Let's, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I am going to begin my Easter message today because it's too long to fit next week, just next week. So I'm going to kind of prepare us for the Easter message this morning. If you want to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning, this is an interesting verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark opens his book, says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what I want to look at this week, and really next week we'll look at the the purpose of the gospel. I want to look at the gospel. We throw that term around a lot, but often, if you were to ask 20 people what the meaning of the gospel is, you'd probably get about 22 answers. A lot of people throw that terminology around, but we don't really know what gospel means. I, I remember it was probably 15 years ago now, Laura Lemmix, uh, Pastor Laura, wave at everybody. She came into my office. She's been my administrative assistant for 19 years, pray for her. And uh, so she came into my office one day and she said, Pastor, how is it that Jesus, it says in Matthew 16, began to talk about his sufferings in Matthew 16, but in Matthew 2 or 3 it says, and with these words he began to preach the gospel. So what it says is that the gospel began to be preached early on in his ministry, but it wasn't until halfway through his ministry he began to talk about his suffering. And being the wise pastor that I am, I said, I don't know, let me get back to you on that. Because it kind of threw me. Because up until that point, I would have said that the gospel must include his suffering. But if they weren't yet talking of his suffering and already preaching the gospel, what was the content of the gospel? So when you figure that out, let me know. No, I'm just kidding. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So we need to understand what the gospel is. I was reading Friday. It was interesting. There was in a city named Priene and of Iona, there was in, a, in white marble stone a gospel presentation that was carved in that stone for all to read. And it talked about how the Savior had come, that he was endowed by, heaven had already foreordained that he would be endowed with special righteousness and he would save the earth and bring peace to the world. It was carved in stone so that all could see it. They could honor this Lord and Savior. The interesting thing, it was not talking about Jesus Christ. This was long before Jesus had been born. In actuality, it was a gospel proclamation speaking about Caesar Augustus. The idea that we have of gospel was already a certain genre of communication. Gospel communication, it, we, you know, what we translate gospel, it's an old Germanic term, means good spell. <laughs> Has the idea that there's power in that word, spell, but it's good spell. 
Or you can also have that idea of, uh, oh, this spells trouble. It means it's forewarning of something, but this is forewarning of goodness. That's the Germanic English version, but it really goes back to the Greek word evangelion. And that's the word that we translate good news or gospel. The evangelion, it's good news. But just looking at the two root words, good news, is not enough to really understand what that word means. Now, that needs to be taken into consideration. And frankly, the way some people preach the gospel is not really good news. They more major on the bad news and they're telling you how bad it's going to be and the, what a bad situation you're in. And hey, there, there's, a, there's some truth to you got to know you're lost before you can be found. But the gospel is good news. But that word evangelion had a, uh, there, there was a historical meaning to it. There was a, it was a certain type of proclamation that was already in existence, and the people of that time would have known what an evangelion is, what a gospel presentation was. And it was a, it was a proclamation about a conquering individual, a, a general. So often the way an evangelion would be released is they would have a herald, a Someone that would come to a city and he would make a presentation. Matter of fact, you can see this in some of the modern movies about that, that era of human history. They would send someone to represent the conquering king and he'd roll out his scroll and he would make the proclamation and that proclamation had some very distinct elements to it. It would talk about the conquering king and who he was. It would talk about his, uh, his resume. It would, not only his governmental prowess, but his military accomplishments. Now the governmental prowess was, it was an offer of, hey, this is what, this guy comes, these are the good things that will happen. But the military accomplishments were actually a warning. This is what he's done to other kingdoms that have resisted his rule, his conquering. And you get to choose, are you going to submit to his governmental prowess, or are you going to have to meet his military accomplishments and be the recipient of them? That was kind of the idea. And so they would declare this person, and they would, it would talk in real flowery terms. And, and when you read the one about Augustus Caesar, it really does almost match the beginning of it, the wording of this one in Mark, where it's talking of Jesus, the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, in biblical times, the apostles, they changed it, because there was, there's this idea of evangelia, which evangelia is good news. It's, you could have different people roll in and they'd all try to up the last one. You know, the last guy that conquered this place was, uh, you know, uh, Alexander the Great. Well, the next one was one of the Caesar and he would talk about how he's even greater and they would also talk about their divine nature. Augustus, Caesar Augustus, they, they looked at him as an incarnate God and they worshiped him as such. Now he was careful to say he was like deified, but once you translate it into the Greek, it really made no difference. They worshiped him as God. But they would have evangelia. But when the apostles started to use this and connect it to Jesus, it started with John the Baptist. He, he spoke of the gospel Matter of fact, it, when John, John began to talk about the one that was coming, he, and it says, and with many other words, he preached the good news or the evangelion. 
The apostles picked up in that Jesus preached about the gospel of the kingdom. But they changed it. It was no longer one release of good news among many. They called it the evangelion, the good news. It, was, it superseded all other good news. And that is precisely why Rome was so, uh, took such a strong stand against the church. Because they were saying, listen, you know what they said about Caesar? It is not true. There was a, an aggressive, almost militaristic uh, nature to the gospel because when they came and they began to proclaim him as the son of God, which it did of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, it, when they proclaimed him the savior, they were saying he is the savior and everyone else is an imposter. And we need to understand when we talk about the gospel, that is really the nature of the gospel. Now, yes, that Jesus suffered and died, and that was how he accomplished the salvation that he purchased for us. But really, to begin with, it was just a declaration. They would come on the scene, and they would proclaim this thing, that Jesus is the Lord. He's not one Lord among many. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God, and he is here to take over. And that's the idea of the gospel. We need to understand that the gospel was, that, that element of the gospel, that I'm taking over element, was not so much towards man as it was towards the principalities and powers, the fallen angels, the demonic realm, as it was against every, anything. And much of what was written about Jesus in the form of prophetic words, you know, the prophetic Psalms and so forth. Psalm 82 is one that comes to mind where it talks about how Jesus is going to sit in judgment on the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. He's going to strip them of their power because they had misused their delegated authority, the authority that God had given them to rule in his stead or rule for him as subservient beings. Uh, you know, in, that, in that, that hour of human history. Well, let me back up. Put it this way. In Galatians it says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, and sent him into the world. In the fullness of time. It has this idea that history had ripened itself. There was a lot of things that had to line up for Jesus to come into the world at exactly the right moment. A lot of people have written on how the Roman government was one element of that. The Grecian language, you know, Alexander the Great had, had conquered the then known world and he had imposed his language, a, a, a tremendous language that was very vivid and uh, could communicate very clearly. And he had imposed it on the world and Rome had built these roads so that people could travel and they could get the gospel out. And, and a lot of people have pointed to that and I think there's truth to that. I believe that is part of how the history was ripe and ready for Jesus to enter human history. But I would propose to you that another element of that was the nature of kingdoms at that time. There were power shifts through war. Power didn't transfer in and out through democratic means where we, people would go and vote on who the next Caesar or the next conqueror would be. They would come and they would take over through military might. They would offer a new form of government if you surrender but if you don't, we will take over with military might and then we'll introduce our government. 
And I, I think that one of the reasons that God had Jesus enter human history under that form of government is because it's precisely the way he does. We don't vote for Jesus. We don't, we get to choose how we will receive him. Will we receive him as a conquering general or as a governor that we surrender to? But the fact is, he comes in to impose his kingdom. And we really can't understand much of the New Testament without the backdrop of that era of human history. The whole idea of, matter of fact, I, uh, some of you remember the song that we sing here. I love the line where it, we talk about the high king of heaven. You know, who know? remember what song I'm talking about? We sing the high king of heaven. And I was just intrigued by that phrase, high king of heaven. So I thought, I'm going to do some research on what it means to be a high king. And this is what I found out. I, found, I think it's very fascinating. A high king is similar to an emperor, except that a high king rules through culture. An emperor will rule over numerous kingdoms that maintain their individual culture. But a high king rules over many kingdoms with a shared culture. And that culture is not American culture. That culture is the culture of heaven where we align with his values. We align with we, we begin to define things through the lens of what the kingdom of God says it is. It's fascinating as I've traveled to other countries and preached in different settings, you'll see elements of those culture that I look at and think, man, we need that. They've got a facet of the kingdom of heaven that we don't have, and we need that in our, our we need that in the United States. We need that in our church. And then I'll see other elements and realize, wow. They've embraced their national culture over the kingdom of heaven, just like you and I have in certain areas. And often we don't recognize that until we get around another culture that has really embraced more of heaven's culture. So what I'm saying is this. Jesus is never called an emperor because he doesn't come to impose rule and let us maintain our own value system and our own culture. Jesus comes as the high king of heaven. And the way he conquers is through an inside job. We begin to pick up his values and we begin to emulate the kingdom of heaven and, and that value system, that, that kingdom culture. And by the time Rome had come along, they had begun to impose their culture. You see, back as far as Babylon and Persia, uh, th those kings, Nebuchadnezzar, he would allow them to retain much of their own culture. But Rome began to conquer through culture. As a matter of fact, that's the backdrop for the whole idea of apostolic ministry and apostles, the Greek word apostolos. And again, we, we won't understand what that word means, the biblical term apostle, the biblical term kingdom, the biblical term uh, gospel, the biblical term of even preaching uh, we don't understand these, this terminology without looking at the backdrop of that era of human history. Because the Greeks started it and Rome perfected it. What they would do is they would raise up generals that would take the culture of Rome and they would set them in a city that was already conquered and they would reculturize that city. So the job of an apostle was to be a governor in the city and begin to re-educate them according to the value system of Rome. 
They would redefine every facet of life through the Roman ideals. So that eventually it would be as if they were living in Rome. So they would no longer want to rebel against Rome because they'd become Romanized. And that's the idea of apostolic ministry brings the culture of heaven to earth so that we begin to see everything through that lens. And all of that has to do with that era of human history. Jesus didn't, doesn't come as an emperor and says, I'm going to let you rule your life by your ideals and you get to rule your life by your ideals, but you can still be connected with me. It doesn't work that way. He comes and he comes to conquer and we've got to bow our knee and align our value system with his. And discipleship is a long process of us discovering, wow, I see that part of life wrong. And I'm going to have to adjust some things. And we grow in him. And to the extent that we do, life begins to work. And the prosperity of heaven begins to break into our, our families, our business, our life, our church. But it's all from that perspective. And I, I really do believe that that's one of the reasons that God chose to bring Jesus into that moment in human history. Had he allowed it to come in at this moment in human history where the world power is still, we're hanging on by a thread, but we're still the world power American, the United States of America. There's a lot of what God was wanting to communicate through the word that would have been lost. Because we don't think from a biblical perspective when we look at government and so forth. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He comes to impose his, I, I think I need to, I don't know if it's my wires guy, but I might have to switch mics. It, uh, we, we come, or Jesus comes, and he comes to conquer. And so when we're preaching the gospel, it's not a matter of us saying, hey, I want to tell you what Jesus can do for you personally. When you think of what the gospel proclamation was, when a herald would come into a city and say, hey, I want to make an announcement. The great general, King Jesus, is about three days out and he's with his army. And he is coming to take over. And he's giving you an opportunity to bend your knee. That's the gospel. That's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that that gospel presentation, that proclamation... The, the word that we translate preaching in the New Testament is kerygma. And even that had a very special meaning to it. It was a herald. It was somebody who would come and announce that type of, it would, a, a kerygma would carry the gospel. It would carry the proclamation. It wasn't so much explanation. That would come later. That's what a teacher does. But a preacher would come and declare the kingdom of heaven. And when they do, they were, not, they, were, they were preaching to the populace, we're inviting you to become part of our kingdom. But they were preaching against the ruling class. And they were saying, you're going to bend your neck and we're going to come and conquer you. And in light of that, much of the gospel presentation in the New Testament is really targeted towards the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. I was thinking about this uh, we were in a town, I, I, I'm trying to think of the name. It was a little town in southern Colombia. Uh, we didn't realize how dangerous it was until we got there. Uh, and we pulled up to our hotel and there were all these guards with AK-47s. Uh, because what, we were in the safest place in town because the, the governor of that region was there. And so they were protecting him because it was also 
The jungle just outside of that was the headquarters of FARC, which is a communist guerrilla group that has become a drug trafficking group. And so uh, they, they would kidnap people for ransom. And here we were these gringos, you know, coming in. We'd, uh, they would think we're valuable. I'm not that valuable. You know, my poor wife would have said, well, I guess you got him. You know, he can do your dishes, but that's all I can offer you. You know, so we come in there and these guys up there with AK-47s. And, and uh, then we find out there'd been some bombings recently and so forth. But we, we had great time there. And uh, there was one night, Christopher was preaching. And the joy of the Lord just hit that place. And then deliverance started happening. And people started, I mean, Person after person would just started screaming and going through deliverance. And they would, John Huffy would just pick people up over his shoulder and carry them out and they'd take them through deliverance, cast the devils out of them. And there was one gal that was screaming and she was saying, I know who you are. You are here on assignment. And she was actually declaring over the team that they had come by divine assignment from heaven. See, that's the idea of apostolic, a sent one, to come into a region and to declare the deliverance that is coming from the king. And it's not a negotiation. It's not a thing where, tell you what, if you give us five of your people, you can keep that one guy that smells bad. That's, that's not the way it works. You declare that. You're declaring the coming king and that he has come to conquer and to bind uh, matter of fact, Dean Briggs mentioned this wonderful psalm when he was preaching here a couple weeks ago. Psalm 149. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's right at the end of the book of Psalms. And it talks about how worship, we have the high praise of God in our mouth and a double-edged sword in our hand. It goes on. It's talking about high praise, worship, that literally binds the enemy. And then we've got the double-edged sword, the word of the Lord in our hand. And it says to bind their kings with fetters and their rulers with shackles of iron. And then it says, this is the glory of all the saints. It goes on to say, to carry out the sentence written against them. Isn't that interesting? It's in the Old Testament. And it's a precursor, a prophetic psalm of the saints of God the redeemed imposing the freedom of the kingdom of God, the pressing the crown rights of King Jesus on humanity, but binding their kings with fetters. It's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter six, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of this dark age in the heavenly realms. And so the gospel proclamation was really first and foremost, a proclamation against these ruling spirits in the heavenly realms. In Psalm 82, let's turn there. I want you to see this. I, I preached on this a couple years ago. It's a fascinating passage, Psalm 82. Verse 1, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't learn about the divine council in Bible school. I was, what was that? God has taken his place in the divine council 
In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, the Hebrew word there is Elohim. And the way I, would, I believed for many years was that Elohim was actually a name for God himself, but it's not. It's a plural word, and it's the name of a class of ruling spirits. And that's what we see here, that God takes his seat among the divine council. See, another thing that we need to understand, we, we wouldn't understand the word if we were looking at it from an American perspective or from a modern governmental model perspective. But in the ancient perspective, when kingdoms, when, when the, the world was ruled by kingdoms, the idea was that these families would rule through layers of delegate. And those delegates were most often family members. They might be distant cousins, but they were family members. You can see this with the royal family in Britain to this day. And just prior to World War II, all through Europe, there, were, uh, th there was really uh, these family families that ruled all of Europe. And frankly, it was an incestuous thing, and there was a lot of health problems within the royal families because they would only marry royal blood, and so they, sometimes they married too closely, and they, uh, you can do some research, you, they got some pretty ugly royals. That had, they were malformed and had some problems because they married their cousins in too close. But it was the idea of, see, it was through family that they would maintain their dominion because they could trust someone that was a family member. Well, we see in this passage that idea being, being shown here. Look, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, take a thought. Just take a moment to think about that. He's, he's rebuking these members of the divine council. Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He's speaking to these, these spirits that he delegated rule over humanity that are now rogue rulers that have rebelled against him. The ones that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 6, referring to them as principalities and powers and dark rulers of darkness in the heavenly realms. Verse five, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And it's, it's caused the foundations of the earth to be shaken because these, these ruling spirits, some of which rebelled and became self-serving. So what's God's answer? Verse six, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. These princes were going to come under the judgment of God. These princes were the principalities spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6. And we see this idea emerge not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. That there were spirits that had authority over given regions. You remember a couple weeks ago I was preaching about Daniel. And Daniel was fasting and praying. And Daniel 9 and chapter, chapter 11 as well. And he was, I want to say it was in chapter 11. Daniel had been on a 21 day fast. And the angel shows up and he said, from the first day you started praying, he said, I came to answer your prayer. I was going to give you the answer from God. I set out that day, but I was contending with the prince of Persia. He wasn't talking about the king of Persia, a human entity. 
wasn't saying that there was a human being keeping me from entering in. The human being, the human king of Persia, was deriving authority from this prince of Persia, but he was speaking of one of these ruling princes. A principality is what the New Testament refers to it as. I want to say the Greek is architecton. It, it has the idea of ark, an archangel, a ruling spirit that had been delegated authority but had, had rebelled against God. And so Gabriel was fighting his way through and God sent Michael to come in and help him break through to give the answer to his prayer. And so we get this picture of that's how spiritual warfare works. That when we begin to pray, the moment you begin to pray, God begins to hear and send the answer. But there's resistance to our prayer. And we need to understand, we've got to have this as part of our grid work. The resistance is not some reticence on God's end. It's not that God says, okay, I tell you what, if you go 22 days, then I'll say uncle and I'll give you what you want. That was a punctuation. <laughs> it's the, the, the hesitancy, the resistance is not from God it's from these rogue rulers in the heavenly realms. That is what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 6. And not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament, there's other words that are translated that have the idea of geographical authority given to these spirits, some of which have rebelled. And so in this passage in Psalm 82, right at the end of it, listen to what it says here. He says, I said you are God, sons of the Most High, you are Elohim. It is the real Hebrew word, saying you are, you are the, these, these ruling class spirits known as sons of God that I've delegated authority to, but you've rebelled against me, and I'm going to deal with you. These are the same sons of God that we see in the first chapter of Job. Remember in Job it says, and the sons of God were called, and people look at those as angels, and you could, you could call them, they're messenger spirits, they are, they're, they're beings with delegated authority, but they're image bearers, sons of God, and they rebelled. So what was God's answer? I'll make a new family of sons and daughters. Son's really a non-gender term, not in the way we use it today, non-gender, you know what I'm saying? We're sons and daughters of God. So God's answer was, I am going to send my son, my only begotten son. Uh, the Greek word is monogenes. It's my only unique son. There's something unique. God had other sons in the heavenlies. We see it right here. We see it in a number of passages. But Jesus was unique. He was the, he was the only unique son, the monogenes Mono, only, genes. He's begotten of the father. He can, genetically, he, he's he shares God's nature. He's the uncreated God. I'm going to send him to take on human flesh. I'm going to raise up another race of sons and daughters of God. And I'm going to overthrow these rogue rulers in the heavenly realms. I'm going to have them preach the gospel. I'm going to have them get up and be the heralds and unroll the scroll and begin to declare over regions of the earth, King Jesus is here. We are his representatives, and he's come to reclaim his planet. And if you look on the end of this passage, listen to what it says. Verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit 
the nations. We see this theme begin to emerge, especially in the Psalms. David wrote about this many times, about God's passion for the nations. If you go back to Genesis chapter 11, where humanity, under the leadership of Nimrod, tried to erect a tower, it was really a ziggurat, it was a pagan uh, man-made mountain, and they would sacrifice on it to commune with these demon gods. And that's why God judged them. And it says there that God disinherited the nations. Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 32. And it talks about when God delegated the nations to the number of the sons of God, but kept for himself Israel. It's talking about that episode in Genesis 11. And it's not a coincidence that in Genesis 11... He scatters the nations, gives them each their own language so that they can't conspire with each other. And the very next chapter, what does he introduce? A new guy named Abram. Because what God was going to do is establish his own nation. Through them, raise up sons and daughters of God. And they were, God was going to bless them as Israel. So why? So they can in turn be a blessing to who? All the nations of the earth. And we see through David and Asaph in this particular passage, they had this revelation of how God was hungry for the nations. And what happened, so on the day of Pentecost, it's interesting, at Babel, they all got different languages and were scattered. At Pentecost, they all got different languages and they were to go into all the earth and preach this gospel of the kingdom. And by that, God was going to re-inherit the nations of the earth. He was going to re-seize those according to this messianic prophecy in Psalm 82. And it's not the only passage. So all of this has to do with this gospel presentation. Now the fact is, when we're talking about the gospel, that is the backdrop. It's not the Romans road where we pull someone aside and say, hey, Let me tell you what Jesus can do for your life. Now, there's a place for that, but the gospel is much bigger than that because the problem is much bigger than your individual sin. God is going to deal with those demonic entities that are at war against him and trying to keep you from him, have led you into evil simply because you are the apple of his eye. God loves humanity. And so what did God do? But let, let me pause here. Let me, let me introduce one other thing. We're talking about some stuff that often isn't talked about in Christian theology. So let's pause there. See, there, there, was, there was more than one entry of evil into human history. In the second temple period between the Testaments, the Jewish scholars would talk about two and even three entrances of evil in the earth. Of course, there was the fall of Adam and Eve being enticed and they ate the forbidden fruit. They say it's not the apple in the tree but the pear on the ground that got us into trouble. You know, anyways, so anyway, okay. The, there was that entrance of evil. That was the fall of man in which internal evil came in. But there was also this external evil. Do I need to trade... 
sorry. Okay. So, I've lost my punctuation. I'll have to slap it or something. The, there was also the, what is addressed in Genesis chapter 6, where it says, the sons of God entered the daughters of men. The sons of God are the same sons of God that are being spoken of here. And out of that came this, you know, this mutant race called the Nephilim that David had to fight, that Joshua had to fight, these hybrid beings. So all of that is the backdrop of this. And, and these, these, these Nephilim that, or these beings that came into the daughters of men also brought in forbidden knowledge. And it wasn't that God didn't want humanity to have that knowledge. They just weren't ready for it. And it corrupted mankind. So what Jesus came to do is not just deal with our own individual sin. He came to overthrow this whole corrupt system that had been introduced through these fallen angels. And there was an entrance of evil that happened when these sons of God entered the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. So what was God's solution? He was going to create another race of sons and daughters. And he did it by the Holy Ghost hovering over a young virgin and she was found to be with child and she gave birth to the Son of God. And so all of this was a message to the demonic realm that God had come to overthrow this corrupt system and he's going to take the nations of the world back. He's going to deal with these entities in the heavenly realms. And the way he does it is through his church. So when we talk about the gospel, we talk about the kingdom. The kingdom is the king's dominion, his right to rule. So when we declare the good news of the kingdom of heaven, we're, we're declaring, we're we're presenting the fact that there's a new king who is going to exercise dominion and he's coming in. And we're inviting you to bow your knee to this new king, but he will take over. That's the idea behind the gospel proclamation. And so he comes to establish his kingdom and he does that through what? His church. Now we've talked about this before. The idea of the church is not the way that many people think of it. These words that Jesus chose to communicate in the New Testament, be it gospel, apostolic ministry, the kingdom, the church, all of these were pre-existent words. And they were connected to the governmental, military, Roman idea. So when we talk about the church, the Greek word that we translate it is ekklesia, now, the King James Version, being the strongest, most influential English translation, that it was translated Kirk. And there was a reason for that. The reason that because King James didn't like the implications of what ecclesia really meant. So they called it Kirk. It, was, it had the idea of a meeting place. That's not what Jesus was talking about when he talked about his church. I will build my church. The word ecclesia was a ruling body. It was a group of people. Matter of fact, you can look in Roman literature and it speaks of the law where if there are two or three Roman citizens gathered under the name of Caesar, they can begin to do Rome's business. Does that sound like any verse you've ever heard? 
wherever two or three are gathered in his name. It was a kingdom mindset. And so the ecclesia of God is the legislative body that comes close to the emperor, listens to his heart, and then legislates his wishes through intercession and activity. So we need to understand that the first way that the kingdom of God is advanced is through prayer. That we're hearing what God is saying and we begin to declare that in prayer. We begin to pray and we're pressing against this opposition. When Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, I'm telling you, our problem is not who is in the White House. Our problem is not who is in the mayor's office. The problem ultimately, now we have some human problems But that's not where it's going to be solved. The problem ultimately is dealing with these principalities and powers in heavenly realms. Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in heavenly realms. How do we do that? We do that through prayer, by staying the course and crying out to God. But it's also through kingdom activity. It's not just us staying in the prayer room all the time. It's us getting involved in other things. But we need to understand our greatest weapon is the gospel. That we declare in the heavenly realms that when we preach the gospel, we're not just preaching to people, we're preaching to their jail keepers. We're preaching to those principalities and powers in heavenly realms. That God would open the eyes of their understanding so that the, the, the eyes of the understanding of the human beings and that the, those principalities would be bound so that the people could be set free. We need to have a spiritual understanding. We need to understand what we're really dealing with. And so as the ecclesia of God, as God's legislative body in the earth, we have authority first to be a herald and begin to declare the kingdom of heaven, to begin to declare that Jesus has come to take over. And then God begins to expand his kingdom, one surrendered life at a time. We can take ground for the kingdom by surrendering more of our own personal lives. And that's a very real process called discipleship and maturity where God begins to deal with us And the areas of your life that you're aware of that you're resisting King Jesus, you are part of the problem. You are part of the cosmic rebellion. And in that way, it opens the door to those demonic entities because you're siding with those fallen beings. Now, that's not to say that a fully surrendered Christian is perfect. I'm talking about the light that we walk in the light that we have. And we surrender those areas. And we, there are times where, been there, done that, where God's dealing with me on some things and I'm struggling and God, I've got to bring this under your lordship. But understand, that is an act of spiritual warfare. Everything we do is an act of spiritual warfare that either aligns ourselves with allegiance to King Jesus or we become part of the problem in resisting him. And those areas of our life that we keep out from underneath the Lordship of Christ, those areas of our life where we're, we are, we're doing activities that are contrary to God's will, we are opening the door 
And we need to see that for what it is. Because we want to come under his blessing and his lordship. And so there's ways that we take ground in our personal life, our personal surrender, but also through the proclamation of the gospel to cause others to fully surrender their life to Jesus. And as we are examples of that and as we declare the deliverance and, and uh, some of the primary ways in which the kingdom of God comes to earth when you look at the New Testament is deliverance and healing. Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So deliverance is one of the primary manifestations of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, I knew a young man that had gotten radically saved out of witchcraft and drug addiction. And uh, he was pretty well known in his, his region. He had all these ghoulish tattoos that he really relished in having that kind of intimidating power over people. He, he said he used to like to go into Walmart and steal things. And he would just look at the workers and like dare them to say anything as he'd put it in. He'd just stare at them and they'd kind of shrink back like, this guy's spooky. But he met a man of God who cast those demons out of him and he got radically saved. So he had been in a drug rehab just before I met him and he would go to this drug rehab and visit his old friends and he would preach the gospel and begin to take the, these people through deliverance. And as he would be preaching, he would begin to see things and he would begin to declare that people would start falling out and manifesting demons and all of a sudden everybody in the room was a believer. Because they were seeing the reality of the spiritual realm right in front of them. So deliverance is one of the primary manifestations of the kingdom of heaven. As is healing. Healing is a real world physical manifestation of God setting this world aright. Because sickness came into the world through sin. I'm not saying that everybody that is sick has sin in their life, I'm saying that ultimately we trace it back. There would be no sickness in the world had not sin entered the world. And one of the manifestations of the kingdom of God coming and overturning sin, one of the manifestations of that is physical healing. And so we need to understand that and we need to use those, that we need to be aware of that and contend for those things and to step into that place and release healing and deliverance every opportunity we get. Because it's one of the ways we bear witness to the kingdom of heaven. So when we talk about the gospel, this is not, it, it's become a religious word, but it was actually a military and governmental word. It was the announcement and even the warning that there is a new king in town. And he has come with his authority and he is going to impose his authority on every rogue ruler. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the announcement of King Jesus. And when we think of his death and his resurrection, which we'll look at next week, when we are thinking of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we need to be thinking of it through that lens. Because Jesus didn't merely come to save individuals from their sin. He came to redeem the cosmos. 
A few months back, I've been meaning to get to this, and maybe we'll tie this in next week, but we were talking, we did a short series on the blood of Christ, on why is the blood significant, and, and uh, Pastor Chantel very ably unpacked some of that this morning during communion. But suffice it to say this, that the blood of Jesus is significant because the life is in the blood. And the life that is in Jesus' blood was a life that was lived in perfect obedience to the Father. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, it's reiterated in Hebrews chapter 5, that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus was not born perfect, he became perfect. It doesn't mean that he was sinful, it just means he wasn't completed. He was innocent, but had never been challenged. And he took that innocence, and whenever he was tempted, he passed the test. And in so doing, he took the image of God stamped upon his human nature, and he manifested that into full maturity until he could be called perfected. And that's what that word means. The word we translate perfected means completed. So God had this dream for man way back in the book of Genesis where he said, let us make man in our own image. That making was a process, that image was potential, that Adam and Eve hadn't realized that God said, I will have a man in my own image. That word will not return void. So Jesus came, put on an earth suit, became a man, and went through all the suffering to learn obedience, and once made perfect, he could then offer up his life to the Father. That life that Jesus poured out in his blood, the reason Jesus' blood is valuable is because it's unlike your and my blood. It's not, my blood has been tainted through failure, moral failure. Jesus passed every test. So he could offer God what God so desired, a man made in my image. So when Jesus poured out his blood, he was giving God what God desired, a perfected life on our behalf. But there's this little, with that as the backdrop, there's this little interesting verse in Colossians chapter 1. And if you look at the passage, it's really the resume of Jesus. Saying that all of creation is his because he created it. But then it goes on to say all of creation is his because he bought it back. He created it, delegated it. The rogue rulers to whom he delegated it took it. So what did God do? He played by the rules he himself set up and as a man came under that system and won it back. When Jesus said just before his crucifixion, his arrest, he said, now the kingdom of darkness, or the, uh, it's the hour of the kingdom of darkness has come. And he said, but he has nothing in me. I love that phrase. I guarantee you hell trembled when Jesus said that because they knew exactly what he meant. They have nothing in me. None of us could ever say that. But Jesus could. In Colossians chapter 1, it has this phrase. It says, And he hath reconciled to himself all things through his blood, comma, whether things in the heavens or things on earth. There's another dimension to redemption that we often don't think of. We think of the blood of Jesus saving us as individuals, and rightly so. That's a glorious thing. We could spend eternity worshiping on that one truth. 
But I'm telling you, there's a whole other dimension to redemption. That Jesus' blood actually reconciles things in the heavenly realm back to himself. And that's what I'm talking about this morning. The gospel is addressing those rogue rulers. And when this thing called human history wraps up, King Jesus will sit down. It says that he will rule until all nations are at his feet and he'll present it to the Father. And when that happens, there will be peace because there will be no opposition because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I don't know about you, but I want to be good and practiced by that day. I don't want that to be my first time. I want to bow my knee. I want to declare his goodness on the front end. That's why we worship. We are crowning him. Every time we gather to worship, we are crowning him with our praise. Scripture's clear that he enthrones the praises of his people, or he enthrones himself in the praises of his people. We're getting in practice. We're saying, King Jesus, you rule. And we're declaring that over our region to the principalities and powers that have tried to exert their influence in this region. We declare that over the tormented ones that come through here. Those that are people like I used to be and some of you who were demonically tormented and addicted and can't get free. And they don't even understand what's going on, but when they come into worship, it's like all of a sudden they have a little bit of peace because they'd entered a no-fly zone in the spirit that's enforced by the host of heaven. Listen, what we do as a church, this is not unique to Heartland, okay? But our role as the church is to carry the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Again, the gospel was a very specific genre of announcement. It wasn't just good news. It wasn't like, hey, there's a sale at Walmart today. That doesn't, that, that's, not, that's not gospel. It had to do with the conquering king. And they would proclaim it as good news. Hey, good news. There is the most powerful king in the universe. They would always use flowery words. But with our king, it was true. He's at the gate. And he's offering you peace if you'll accept it. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand. Now, I know that that was kind of a piecemeal stuff, but that's important for us to understand for next week when we're going to look at the resurrection. And so when G what Jesus was accomplishing through his death and his resurrection was more than merely reconciling individuals to his will. He's dealing with the fallen cosmos, and he's going to bring it all into alignment with his will. Amen? Father, I thank you this morning. Lord, we just, we bless each of these here this morning. Lord, I ask that you would open the eyes of their understanding. And Lord, if there's any in this room that have not yet bowed their knee to you, Lord, I ask that they would accept your offer. That they would realize there's a good king that offers freedom. That we don't have to remain under the oppression of the enemy. We thank you for it, Jesus. Before I let you go this morning, I want to open the altar. I'm going to ask the ministry team, those that are, are available, uh, to come forward. If you need prayer this morning, 
If you need to surrender your life to Jesus, if you need prayer for anything else, it might be as we've talked this morning, you realize, you know what? There's some areas of my life that I need to bring under King Jesus. Uh, They're here to pray for you this morning, and uh, we want to make that available to you. Also, I just want to remind you as well uh, of the fellowship afterwards. Make your way back there, and let's, uh, let's have some fellowship around the kingdom. Amen? Father, we thank you. We just bless each one of these, and Lord, we ask that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in our life as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.